Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. talking about a, a, a thing called the Brown-Peterson phenomenon. This actually comes out of two different papers, uh, one by Brown and one by Peterson, I think just Brown, and one by Peterson and Peterson uh, from the late 50s, early 60s. So, and they were using um, consonant vowel consonant trigrams, just like Ebbinghaus did. Instead of words, they use consonant vowel consonant trigram, which is a perfectly fine thing. I think today we probably use words, but this was early days. So they use constant vowel constant trigrams. And instead of having people present doing what Ebbinghaus did, which is, you know, well, he presented it himself, but what you typically do is you present them and then have people do recall. What they did is they presented them, and then they had people immediately do a distractor task after every single item. So after item one, so the first is, let's say it's BAP, B-A-P, okay? And then they would give it, they would just say a number. At 439, you had to count backwards by threes. Out loud. You couldn't just sit there and say you were doing it. You'd do it out loud, okay? And for about, it might have been only about 10, might have been, it's less than 10 seconds. And they present another one, the same thing. We're talking about 10 items here, 20, I think, between 10 and 20 items. Now, if I was to give you a list of constant out constant trigrams and, and give you, say, five seconds between and didn't do the distractor task, you could be up around 70-80% when I do the recall <laughs> test right away. However, they found that they got down to 20% recall after 18 seconds of a retention interval. So they go, at the end, you're still doing the distractor task, people are down around 20% recall. They're only remembering 20% of the, the vowel, constant vowel constant trigrams. <coughs> So you're up around 70% easily. In the lab class, we just did a, uh, an experiment. Um, well, we're in the middle of doing an experiment, and we have a list of words that are presented. And then, after the list of words, we had a distractor task. Of course, the students lose a distractor task because the students are in the lab class. So what we did is well, I divided the class into two, and we're doing the Psychology 3296 Trivia Challenge which people took exceedingly seriously, which I love. For five minutes, people answer trivia questions competitively, two teams. I believe the right half of the room, the left half of the room, I believe, is winning right now. See what happens tomorrow. Chance for a comeback the right half of the room. Um, but on average, they were calling about between 60 and 70% of those words. So what's the difference? <laughs> well, what Brown, the Brown-Peterson phenomenon, that's what they did. They're preventing rehearsal during encoding. That's what they're doing. So when we did the distracted task in the lab class, well, we're, I was preventing rehearsal during the retention interval. Right? But I was not preventing rehearsal during the, the test, during the study portion, I'm sorry. Okay? So I was not preventing rehearsal then, I was preventing it during the test itself. Uh, sorry, they are. 
Make sense? Because one of the ways that we try to remember things is we rehearse things. In fact, this is even true of pigeons, and uh, it's a long story as to how we know this works, so I'm not going to go into explaining this, but it's actually true with pigeons remembering items, that pigeons, in fact, rehearse things. Now, I'm not saying that pigeons are quietly saying to themselves, heck red, heck red, heck red. <laughs> but, because pigeons don't speak, as far as you know. But, I will say that if you interfere with processing <coughs> during encoding, pigeons do poorly. That's work that Peter Trolley's done. He's done some really cool stuff over the years. Um, and so you, you prevent rehearsal. And this is what we do, as I said. For example, if I was to give you a phone number, right? The university phone number is 705-949-2301. Now, if I told you that and you were about to put it in your phone, You'd be, what would you do? You say to yourself, 705 949 <laughs> Right? Now, phone calls are different nowadays because you can just pick your phone. I don't know my wife's cell phone number. Siri knows my wife's cell phone number. That works just fine. Call Isabel's iPhone. That works out just fine. But, I know, literally, I don't think I know what. Yeah, I know. I could probably pick it out of a bunch of lists of phone numbers, but I don't know what. I can't recall it. I could recognize it. But, if I give you a novel phone number, right? We used to do this all the time. Somebody at a, you're at a bar at a party or something, say, oh, we should call uh, Donnie. He, he, he didn't know what we're doing. Let's call him. You know his phone number? And someone says his phone number. And then as they're, you know, getting out, well, not them, getting out their cell phone, walking to the key phone with their clerk, they start yelling at their numbers. You can do that about twice and then you become a real jerk. But an interesting thing is, it doesn't have any numbers. You could just yell out, orange, chair, football. Anymore. Right? Because they can't rehearse. This is exactly what Brandon Peterson did. This is using psychology for evil and not good. <laughs> so forgetting in short-term memory is a is very rapid memory processing. The key processing thing we do, in fact, especially verbal stuff, is to re rehearse it. <coughs> so if we don't rehearse it, it, it goes away exceedingly quickly. Like we would measure this in seconds, not minutes. And which, which words, which constant valve constant trigrams are Brown and Peterson, and that, that Brown-Peterson phenomenon do you find? They, they tend to be the first one, first couple, early on ones, not the late ones. This supports a two-store model of memory. Two-store type model, Atkinson shift. Now I know there actually are three boxes in the Atkinson-Schiffer model, right? There's uh, sensory register and short-term memory or short-term store and long-term memory or long-term store. Yeah, but the short, the, the uh, sensory memory or the icon or the echo, as they've been called, those are really perceptual systems, sensory systems. We, they aren't really considered memory per se, but we will talk about that in class. So, Atkinson-Schiffer is one of the first two-store models. 
Okay. So it's called a two-store model, even though there's actually three boxes. Nothing's actually stored in for well for very long at least in sensor register. <coughs> a lot of different memory systems uh, sort of approaches have two different kinds of memory. Episodic semantic, you know, if you read the Tolving article, that's sort of the overarching article for the course room. If you look at Larry Squire's procedural declarative approach, Atkinson and Schifrin, even even William James talked about primary memory and secondary memory. This is a pretty common approach. Is the world more complicated than that? Hell yes. Oh yeah. <coughs> Things are way more complicated than a simple two-store model. As you'll see today, working memory, which is what we now call short-term memory, is way more complicated than just a box. Right? But the idea that we have sort of one for short-term stuff and one for long-term stuff has some use. So you might say, why would you still teach that? Well, it's a nice way to organize data. Right? It's the same reason, like, why, why are you taught that protons and neutrons are at the middle of an atom and electrons rotate around it like a planet around the sun? Why are you taught that until what, grade 11 or grade 12 when someone says, actually, there are probability clouds, there are quantum thing of electrons, and you go, what? You probably couldn't have dealt with that very well in grade 9. <coughs> First of all. And secondly, the classical model with the orbits actually explains a lot of data. So it's a way to still understand stuff. There's, we're still, while we like to get at the truth, we also want to explain data. The two-store model explains data well. Even though, as I said, the world isn't that simple. All right, questions? Make some sense? Okay, so short-term memory, long-term memory. So capacity numbers, this is, and I mentioned this is on CMS. Um, Miller talked about the magic number seven, plus or minus two. So what that means is for some people, their, their capacity in short-term memory might be as little, as few as five items. For some people, it might be as high as nine. Most people, it's around seven, right? <coughs> so now the thing is, it's not... I didn't know we had background music today, but that's good. So that doesn't really set the mood as well, but... And it's not fast. Well, it's, it's okay. It just doesn't set the mood. So, um, it's seven plus or minus two items, but don't, what's an item? It's a chunk. It's so common. What is it? Whatever it is, if it's anybody in your place... Unless it's my, it's not my computer. No. Doesn't sound like he's going to speak. What is it? It's got to come from something. Oh, you know what? Is it you? No? Okay. What was it? I'm curious. Honestly, you're going to laugh. No, I'm not going to laugh. I don't laugh at these days. It's the free YouTube music. I don't have a problem with that at all. <laughs> you two, you two, the Montreal Canadians and David Letterman, the three closest things I have to a religion. But like, that's so that's when I double click, I didn't even have music open. So that's awesome. That, that happens to me sometimes when I'm walking. With the, uh, I've got I use VLC on my iPad, and then I'll be in the bus, 
And then I noticed, like, here's something that I realized there's still a Sopranos episode playing on my iPad. And that happened a couple of times. And always not the best language. Okay. So, it's seven plus or minus two chunks. What the hell's a chunk? A chunk is the smallest unit you can put in short-term memory. What's the smallest unit you can put in short-term memory? It's a chunk. It's in the circular idea. When I say a bit, I mean a completely circular idea. But the thing is, it actually, it still seems to be true. So, for example, with phone numbers, with phone numbers, we don't remember phone numbers as seven digits, typically. We typically remember them as two chunks. Now, at first, you might, when you learn a new phone number, you might remember it as five items. The first, and let's, let's pretend we don't have to worry about 10 digit, digit dialing. That's a given. That's almost semantic knowledge if you live here, or it's going to be, so it's going to be 701. Because here we don't, we don't have to worry too much about area code overlap and stuff like that. We can go a lot of other places, eventually we will. So, you know it's 705. Now, 949, if you've lived in Sault Ste. Marie for any time, and most of you guys have for some, at some point, because for a little bit of time, because you go to school here, 949 is something, is a, is a prefix. You hear that. So that's going to be one thing. The 2301 for the university phone number, at first that's going to be four items. But very quickly, if you've dialed that number a few times, it becomes two items. So in fact, the university phone number, instead of taking up two slots in short-term memory, when you recall it, actually only takes up, so first time it's going to be seven, and then maybe five, and then now to just two chunks it's going to take up. Okay? And you remember as a kid, when you first learned your phone number, because you weren't a phone number expert, we're all phone number experts because we've dealt with phone numbers enough in our lives. When you're a kid and you first learn your phone number, it is seven items. Right? And then eventually it becomes just two items. And I was a kid, it was three ring four. Yeah, see, I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> that was the phone number. It didn't have a dial. Really? Yeah. yeah. And then you set a pigeon, is that? You <laughs> just pick up the phone, wait for the operator, and she says, what number do you want? You got a three ring four, five ring three, or whatever. That's hilarious. That's the way it was. I, I believe you. But I, I wasn't just, old enough to remember the crank phone. The crank phone? I don't even have one of those. We had one in our house, because my dad refinished it and attached it to the network, because it's kind of thing my dad used to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. You could, you could only uh, answer, you couldn't listen to the call because it was, yeah, it was neat. Um, it was also illegal because it used to be that you couldn't put your own equipment on the Bell Network. You had to rent, you had to rent your phone phone. So he had to do something with a filter so they didn't know it was a flash. Just, the world was a strange place back then. Um, so, and, and we all think, well, now we're all phone number experts, but if you ever been to a country that doesn't use three and four, Anybody here in the country does not use a three-digit-four-digit phone number, right? Because I remember when I was in the UK and someone said, oh, just call me tonight or ring me. What's that even mean, ring me? Just knock me up. That's weird. <laughs> that means knock on your door. Okay, cool. What's your phone number? 01685. No, that can't be a phone number, first of all. In Oxford, all phone numbers start with 1685. 01685, 0, and then there's five more digits. You know. 
Dad can't remember that. You see the side of like a plumbing truck in the UK and the phone number just wraps all the way around. <laughs> and sometime around 2050, that's going to happen here actually, that we're going to have to have an extra digit in our phone numbers. Well, you know, I, I'll, like, we'll be dead by then, so I'm not really that concerned about it. But, well, I'm 85. <laughs> um, by then, frankly, I don't think we'll worry about the numbers that are assigned to us. I think that'll all be done with names. But that's a whole different matter. The interesting thing is here, there is a capacity limit in short-term memory or working memory. Um, when we do free recall, we get to, I've talked about this before, the serial position effect. So the first things you've encoded are already in long-term memory, when I give you a list of words. And then the last things are still in short-term memory. So you get the primacy effect. So if we have, this is the probability of recall. And this is the uh, serial position. That's just where, when it was presented. You get something like this. Works pretty, that it's, it's robust enough, in fact, that oftentimes in like psychology classes it's used as a demonstration. Because you know it's going to work. The first words remembered. Why? Because you've, re you've rehearsed it enough and it's probably gone into long-term memory. And the last words remembered because it's still in short-term memory. The ones in the middle, not very good. And this, this can be true of a lot of different kinds of stimuli, too. I remember when uh, my wife, when I was in graduate school, she worked at uh, a market research company. And they would do these studies for, for, for you know, part of research, right? So they, they get these clients and they, one of the things they would try to find is how memorable is, it, is, it, is a commercial? Sure, that's interesting, why not? You would expect a more memorable commercial to be a little more effective. So they would show people, say, five commercials and then ask them to remember details of the commercials. That actually sounds like a pretty well-designed little study. And she came home one day and she said, I, and she never could tell me who she was working for, like who their clients were, because of course it's confidential, but she could tell me what they did. And she said, the client was really happy today because their commercial was the best remembered. And I said, oh, well, that's good. That, obviously, that makes sense. Uh, I said, so how do you run something like that? She said, well, they see five commercials. I said, oh, yeah, sure. And then for each person, they see the commercials in a different order, right? And she said, no. I said, so the client was the first or the last one, wasn't it? She said, how did you know? And I said, because I took the intro site and no one had your work yet. Um, I said, don't tell the client. <laughs> but... So even with something as big as that, the stuff in the middle, there's interference. The other items are interfering with processing the information. <coughs> if you change the retention interval, the recency effect goes away. So if you pull this out about 20 seconds, especially if you do maybe a distractor task of some sort, this goes away, the recency effect. Even with no distractor task, pull it out a couple of minutes, maybe a minute, it's gone. Look at this bracket task go 10, 15 seconds. Those last items are down around the same probability as the middle ones. So short-term memory does not last long without processing is the key thing here. Okay? Questions about that so far? Of course, then at the Christmas party for my wife's work, which was always a very nice gig, they had free food and free booze. And I go up to the owners of the company and I tell them I would consult with them for $100 an hour because I'm, I'm drunk. And I need money because I'm a graduate student. You know, you should hire me. There's experiments you write. And it was good that they liked Isabella and she was bilingual because I'm sure they would have fired her because of my antics. 
experience is basically when processing of one item makes it impossible or difficult to process another item. Right? So the later items in a, in a serial position kind of approach are tougher to process than the earlier items because you're already processing the earlier items. Right? And think about it, the interference phenomenon is something that happens all the time. I've talked about driving a car, for example. When you first learn to drive a car, no one could talk to you. Right? Because you literally had to bring into short-term memory how to drive a car. And sort of bring it into consciousness. Right? Or awareness. You don't have to really do that anymore once you've driven long enough. Now you can drive and you can actually be talking to somebody Mickey. Yeah, but when I like get stressed out in a situation or something, like when I'm driving in downtown Toronto traffic with a standard car, I still turn the radio down. Oh sure. And I think that's see things are still gonna take processing power. So this is the reason, for example, why distracted driving is a real thing. Right. That you shouldn't be talking on the phone while driving, even with a hands-free device. <clears throat> you shouldn't be texting. My girlfriend laughs at me though, because she's like, it's not like why are you turning the radio down? Because it distracts you. It's distracted driving. Yeah, yeah, and it's also since <laughs> because there's the only thing you, what does she, she you know a lot about psychology? No, she also doesn't drive, so her opinion is about. Yeah, I was gonna say. So, what's what's it what's it matter? Um, because we only we have a finite amount of perceptual resources, and we have to assign them to things. Um, we don't know how we're assigning them, right? That's taken care of. We'll talk about how that's done today, um, or at least we'll talk about the box in a model that does that. I'm sure, I know how it's done. Um, and people have asked before, why is it the case that? Having a conversation isn't as distracting. Because like if you're talking on the phone's bad, why is it that talking to a person in the car is bad, not bad? Why is that not distracting driving? The, the key thing here is that one of the things you can do effortlessly when we're talking to someone face to face, or even they're sitting beside us, is we can get their facial expressions, we can get the intonations of their voices a lot better. When you're talking to somebody on a phone, it's very difficult to you, you, basically, what you do is you take up processing power by trying to guess what they're thinking. It's much easier to do that when you can see someone's face. I would, um, I would put money on a video call projected on the screen, like on, on, the, on the windshield, literally being less distracting than a phone call, and there's an experiment. Now, uh, would it also be a little bit like the person in the car that's the car? Also that. That's a confound, it's a good confound because they can actually warn you of, oh, look at the person in the car can't, the person in the car can't adjust the conversation based on the track when. I was just going to say, my mom, every time she's talking to me while she's driving, like, we'll be sitting beside each other in the car. Even if she's just talking, she'll miss her turn every time. Yeah. No, I know people like that, too. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, again, it's because we have, we have a finite amount of processing power. Right. And the less we use doing something else, the more we can put on things like driving the car. And I'll mention later that, in fact, we, won't, we wouldn't want to call... The ability to drive still kind of... You kind of still have to load the, inability, the ability to drive program into, into short-term memory. It doesn't take up one of those seven slots. And you'll see how that works in a, like 20 minutes. <laughs> I tell you. Okay? Okay. So unless stuff's still available in short-term memory, 
the later items. It's going to be tough to recall. So the harder the task becomes, typically for these short-term memory kind of tasks, the harder the task, really it's just based on more interference. Okay, questions so far? Good, you guys are asking good questions today. Excellent. No, it's good, it's good. As opposed to usually? No, as opposed to usually, though it's a vocal enough class. Um, first thing class, people ask a lot of questions. Okay, so let's talk about stuff that's coded in short-term memory. So if it's rehearsal, it's got to be acoustic, doesn't it? It's got to be, even though it's not you making, making your lips move necessarily, you still are saying it to yourself in your mind's ear, sort of, yeah? Right, so you're still kind of saying it to yourself. <laughs> you're still quietly saying to yourself, and then moving your lips, tree, 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 tree. Right? So how can we find out if it's acoustic? I mean, it certainly sounds like it should be. Huh? Sounds like acoustic? <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like it ought to be. But how can we test that? Well, the easiest thing we can do is we can give you lists of letters instead of words. Or any words. And let's look at the mistakes. Remember I was talking about the pattern errors. One of the important things we always look at. And one of the things that we do is that we confuse V with B. But we're not confuse <coughs> F with E. Well, V and B sound similar, don't they? F and B look similar, but don't sound similar. So if it's, if it's something about the way the thing looks, if we imagine the actual word in our head, right, we should confuse F and E. If we are hearing the letter, we're rehearsing instead of visually, we're rehearsing it sort of orally, we, we should confuse D and B, and, and we did. And by the way, everybody does. And it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Now, it might not be D and B because they have different names in other languages. Okay. I've seen stuff with this done where languages that are that use uh, things like uh, using, say, Mandarin, using characters. The characters actually don't have sounds, right? You know this, right? They're just they're pictures, okay? What you do, though, is you find two characters that look similar, that, that mean different words, that sound different, and you find two words that sound similar, but their characters are different. And people, it's exactly the same thing. People confuse sound, not the visual of the word. No matter how many times people have told you or people are called visual learners and auditory learners, there's no such thing. There literally are no data supporting this. It all sounds great, so people glommed onto it, but it's a crock. I've got this book in my office called 50 Myths About in Psychology, and I think that's number one. Well, like number one is if you use 10% of your brain, <coughs> Number two, people are left brain and right brain. Number three, visual auditory learners. There just aren't any. We just learn. Right? And the idea that we'd be visual is kind of crazy. Visual learners from words. Especially, we invented writing. Language evolved. Humans invented writing. Those are two different things. So. 
So basically, we're, we confuse semantically dissimilar words that are acoustically similar. So if we can do it with letters, we can do it with words. So, so semantically dissimilar, but acoustically similar. Heat and meat. No, you put heat on meat to make it delicious. Strickland propane takes the heat off the meat. Or the other way around, actually. Whoa. God, I love it. It's just so good. Maybe I'll start watching that next. Anyway, sorry. Just planning what I'm going to binge watch next. It's sad, really. It's funny how the world's changing. All right. Does this make sense? So what is rehearsal? Well, it's silent repetition. You know, but how the hell we could have measured that? That's not going to be an easy thing to measure. We're pretty sure we it. We can report. We can ask people, "What do you do when you're trying to remember something?" I say it to myself. Say it to myself. So you know what we do? Oh, well, we do. You know what Rundus did? It's a great name. In 1971, classic experiment. Just told subjects, uh, while you're remembering this list of words, say aloud anything you want to. And then run this recorded if you're saying. And people that out loud said the word to themselves, the thing you do to yourself, you know, tree, 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 just you know, think the word tree. They remember better than people that didn't do that. One of the interesting phenomena that Rundus found is the, the, the most recent word in the rehearsed list is the one that's best recalled. What do I mean by that? Well, when I give you a list of words, and you can't help but do this if you have this memory test coming, if the words are tree and clock and door and desk, the first of all, tree, you say this is tree, tree, tree. Then I say door, you go tree, door, tree, door, tree, door. Desk, tree, desk, door, tree. You always put that first word first in your list of recall of things you rehearse. You just do it. It's, not, it's a thing humans automatically do. So when you do that, we can then look. And the next thing is, Rundus actually has recorded evidence that people are doing this. And then, okay, now please recall the words from people. Tree is the first thing they recall. Because that was the first word in their list of things they were rehearsing. When we were going through the words in our lab experiment, mm -hmm. I would go through them backwards. Like once there was about four words, I would start from the most recent one you showed me and then try to remember them all. Okay. Was, was the reason you did that or just happened? I think it just happened. Okay. Yeah, typically that is the case too. And of course, by the way, everybody, in the lab class, everybody in the class knew we were doing an experiment on, on well, we designed the experiment class. Everyone knew they were going to be tested on these words. Right? Um, we'll find out tomorrow what happens with the retention interval of five days. Uh, I, I imagine it's going to drop. <coughs> I imagine it's going to drop. It scored me this morning. So. I can't tell you how you did it. The only thing that matters is the overall scores, not the individual scores. <laughs> and I can't remember how you did it either. So. I haven't recorded them yet. I just scored them. Okay, so that's, sound, that's a pretty robust phenomenon, but it may not be recency and short-term memory. It may just be that it's more discriminable, in other words, more different from the other words. 
Because you've made it more different by seeing it more often to yourself. I know that's a very subtle difference. It may in fact be a difference, a distinction without a difference, but you've made it more discriminable because you have encoded it more. You've thought more about the word itself. In fact, it might be what's called elaborative processing of early items. Um, so elaborative processing is when you start to think about the meaning of the word. You start to elaborate on it. So if the first word is tree, you might think of the word tree and the way it sounds. You also might think of a particular tree. Because frankly, you've only got one word in the list so far. I know this is only five seconds. But you start thinking about trees. Perhaps you think about the Large. Monty Python, anybody? I got one little giggle there, that's good. Um, so, it may simply be that. And then when the second word, what was the second word again? The clock? Maybe. You might think of a clock installed into a tree. That's a weird tree. That's some kind of tree you might see in some kind of really bad show for kids. Like my Sid and Marty Croft. That was just for me. Um, it's pretty funny, though, uh, to me. And frankly, I don't care if you don't find it funny. I'm not paid per laugh. If I was, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> um, I'd also be giving you all nitrous oxide before you clap. But so it could just be just like levels of processing explanation. You're just processing it more and more deeply because you think about the semantic. Uh, earlier items when you think about the semantic <coughs> properties of the word, not just the surface properties. Okay? Questions? We'll talk about levels of processing. Uh, well, we'll live a couple weeks. Later. So the idea of SDS, short-term store, or short-term memory, has kind of been supplanted. People still talk with short-term memory. Um, Indeed, even in the literature, I, well, not so much in the literature, I think people will talk about it if they're not doing memory research. So people that are doing stuff in other areas where they bring in the cognitive stuff might talk about short-term memory. It's not like it's a bad term, it's just as a technical term, sort of a term of art in cognitive psychology, it's been replaced by the idea of working memory. So this is where, remember I talked early on about different um, metaphors for memory, and one of those metaphors is the workbench or the desktop, right? And that's what working memory is. It's basically the idea, this is where you're working on information that's in, a lot of it at least, in consciousness right now. Okay. So what is working memory? Um, working memory is made up of a few different items. At the top, there's a thing called the central executive. There's a thing called the central executive. Now, it's making decisions on what to process when and what to put where. Below that, there's the phonological loop. Now, that sounds a lot like what, 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 what Miller was talking about with the 7 plus or minus 2. That's the case. So the phonological loop has a limited capacity of 7 plus or minus 2 items. That's what's there. That's the stuff people were studying. People weren't studying 
all of short-term memory, they were studying the phonological loop in working memory. This is what allows us to carry on a conversation, for example, Wendy. I was just wondering if you could repeat what a central executive is. It's making decisions about where to put different kinds of uh, information and what to process and how to process it. Other questions? Yeah? Okay. Now, beside the phonological loop, but not below it or above, so also just below the central executive, is something called the visuospatial sketch pad. This is where we, well, it should tell you what it's doing. It's, 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 what, it's allowing you to do things like, well, spatial tasks. So keep track of where you're going and where you've been. <coughs> For example. Okay. So that's one thing you can do. One of the key things it's doing. Let's say you're building something. This is where you're going to, and you, you visualize what you're going to do. That's there. That's not in phonological loop, right? Or you're wiring something. You're, 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 uh, or, or putting IKEA furniture together. Oh, look, it's the Klunt. Is that a lamp or a bookshelf? <laughs> well, it's both. It uh, comes with Allen keys. Oh, God, I hate IKEA stuff. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just, so, and the instructions with those weird guys, you know, and, they got, and then he's got the phone, and he's calling Ikea. Wow. Ikea isn't as bad as like you buy the knockoff stuff, right? And it's made in North Korea or something, and <coughs> it just doesn't work. It falls apart as you're building it. My son had a dresser like that for four years. Never really was put together properly. Had all the parts. So when you're doing, you're building something, you're building, you want to make a lot of those and put sort of uh, semi-disposable Swedish furniture together. And <laughs> it's mostly made of particle board, which means it's mostly glue. And you're putting this together, you can, you, can, you, you can read the instructions, you also get the picture, and the picture's helping you understand what you're supposed to do. Right? So that's two different parts that are below central executive. I can draw it up in this. So you've got the central executive, and then you've got the phonological loop, and then you've got the visual spatial sketch pad. They're two separate subsystems controlled by the central executive. One of the interesting things we do is that we, when we search working memory, the searches we make are exhaustive. Yeah, what do you mean by that? I mean, if I was to ask you, if I gave you a list of items, let's say seven items, okay, and then I ask you, is one of those items, is this there or not? So I'm going to give you yes or no responses. So this is pretty quick. So I'm going to give you seven items, and then I'm going to say, so if I give you and I'm going to use a silly example. Give me 8675309. And I ask you, is O there? It takes you just as long to say yes to that as it does for you to say yes to 8. 
And that's a robust song that always happens. It also takes you just as long to say no to something as it does to say yes to something. In other words, you go through, so it's an 8, 10, 5, 3, 9, there's no, uh, there's no 4. So if I ask you if there's a 4, you actually do what I just did and go through it. Sure, that should take the whole time. But it also takes you just as long to say 8 was there. Isn't that crazy? It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because if I ask you at 8, it should take you a lot shorter than it takes you to say, was 9 there? Nope. Takes the same amount of time. Crazy. Very robust phenomenon, by the way. So we search in serial. We search one item after the other, but it's exhaustive. We know we search in serial. One item after the other. But the search itself is exhaustive. So if we're searching phonological loop, which is what we're talking about here, we search exhaustively. Now, eventually, a couple of other items were added to, to um, this model. And the model was the idea of working memory was originally thought of by Badley and Hitch. <clears throat> and I think I posted Badley and Hitch's uh, stuff up on uh, CMS as well last week. So now we've got two more subsystems in this multiple component model. We've got abstract semantic knowledge, called AS here, and we've got procedural knowledge. Procedural knowledge is things like how to throw a baseball. Procedural memory, we talked about the other day. Semantic knowledge is things like what's the capital of Vietnam? That's right. <laughs> anyway, so now you all, one thing you're going to know at the end of this course the capital of Vietnam is Hanoi. So, what the central executive is doing is it's dealing with items as they come in, it's out and putting them in the right uh, box, the right subsystem, and allocating our resources to the different subsystems. That's what the central executive is doing. So it's executive functioning. Now you might think at first, this seems really bizarre, but we can actually dissociate these things. We can dissociate the visual spatial sketch pad the central, sorry, from the phonological loop from semantic and procedural knowledge. We can find variables that affect one and not the other in the same way. One of my honor students is doing stuff on something similar to this right now. So basically, the central executive is telling the subsystems what to do and when to do them. Now, the thing is, temporal lobe damage can mess up performance. It, 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 it can make it so. You have trouble processing, knowing when to process what, basically. 
so the central executive is somehow temporally driven. And indeed, there are disorders of executive functioning. A classic one being autism is probably there's a central executive and executive functioning problem with, with people with autism, right? So they can get very easily distracted, right? And knowing where to put what is difficult for them. In fact, they have to be taught stuff that we don't have to be taught. It also might be one of the explanations of why people with autism do something very called stimming. Okay? Stimming is when they do things with flap their hands. Okay? Now, you might wonder, and it's funny, my son has autism, and I've asked him before, why does he do this? Because he knows he has autism. Um, in fact, one day he said to us at dinner about three years ago, did you know April is autism awareness month? I said, no. And he said, uh, I said, what's autism? He said, it's a pervasive de- developmental disorder. I said, where did you learn that? He said, I've read Wikipedia today. I said, okay, good. And then he said, I said, do you know anybody with autism? He said, well, I have autism in my brain. <laughs> he's, he's cute until you hang out with him. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting because I said to him, I've seen him a few times, I said, like I said, I said, what are you doing? Like when we walked home from school, he went, uh, I said, what are, you, what are you doing? He said, I'm just stimming, being autistic. <laughs> he'll say that. And I'll say, so, so why do you do that, John? And he'll say, because it feels good. I said, okay, so what if I stopped you from doing it? And I said, no, I'm not going to stop you, but what if I stopped you? He said, I'd want to do it. So it's something you can't help but do. So why the hell would you do that? Why would that make you feel good? Well, it may be the case, and I've, I've, I've read stuff that says this, that think about the procedural knowledge. Some of the procedural stuff is, for example, to know how to walk or how to do anything with your wings, with your body, you have to know, for example, where your hands are. He may not actually know where his hands are right so it's a way for him to remind himself of where his hands are. Now, I'm not sure that's true. I've heard that said. I've read speculation to that effect. I don't know how we designed an experiment to show that that's true. But it's an interesting guess. And I can tell when he's doing it. I can tell when he's faking. And I think his sister can tell when he's faking, too. When he does what I, what we, what I call playing the autism card. You know. We're going grocery shopping. Oh, I don't want to. I'm scared of groceries. <laughs> I say that. I'm not, don't, don't do that. You're not, you're not afraid of it. But I usually make fun of them. Last night he was scared of spaghetti. He was scared of spaghetti last night. Pasta. Not pasta. I'm scared. I think you just don't want to eat spaghetti for dinner. Don't pull that shit. It's not my favorite. I, I just said the same thing. You know, my favorite is single malt scotch, but I'm not drinking it right now. You've got to just deal with what's, you know, play the hand you're dealt. But I know he said that he's been afraid of groceries before. And I just make fun of him until he realizes that I've caught him. So, oh, what, what, what's scary? Is it peanut butter? Ooh, and I'll come at him with a jar of peanut butter. And then he just laughs. And then, of course, he starts pretending he's afraid of peanut butter. It's all a good time. Um, life with Jonathan. But it may be the case, then, that people with autism have a problem with their central executive. 
acting, right? So they're not going to encode things properly a lot of times. And they're also not even going to be dealing with things the same way we are. So you have to actually teach somebody in autism a lot of times um, that words go here. But you don't actually say that. You don't have, you know, but you have to teach them how to remember things. Right? I'm afraid of Boston. Because <laughs> and I can say to him, don't 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 play the autism card with me, and he'll stop doing things sometimes too. And he like he's like, oh, you got me. Yeah, I was faking that time. <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. Some problems with this whole notion. Okay. So the central executive. So who watches the watchers? What's controlling the central executive? Who's telling the central executive how to run your working memory? It's got a kind of deus ex machina feel to it. Ghost in the machine. <coughs> right? Doesn't it? It's like, yeah, there's a little guy in there pulling levers and pushing buttons, or maybe it's more of a minority report type interface. I don't know. But there's somebody in there, a little man, a little ghost in the machine, a little homunculus, <laughs> making decisions. Did that sound a little bit weird to you? I don't know. It's always to me. It's always kind of bugged me. It reminds me of um, there's this Freudian idea of the, uh, the night watchman in dreams. He's like going around making sure yeah. you stay asleep. Yeah. It's just like that. Yeah, it's like, or it's the kind of thing of like uh, what I always think about is like Terminator. So we think differently. Um, I always imagine like you know you're watching Terminator and you see sometimes things from Arnold's point of view, and you actually see like little readouts and he's reading them. Why is that even necessary? You don't need to read stuff on your eye if it's already in there, right? When eventually we all have contact lenses that you can project information on, like they had in Torchwood, um, which we will all have soon, which is weird. You know, and I'll be able to just look at somebody and it'll just say, you know, the uh, name is Taylor. So I don't, I don't have to remember anybody's name anymore because it'll just look and it'll match things up to some database, you know, or whatever. Let's hope it doesn't do that. would be a little crazy. But you can walk down the street. Now, but the thing is, I don't have to have a readout when I know somebody's name. Arnold apparently needs that all the time. He's a Terminator. Why do we have to be reading stuff? Right? So the central executive kind of strikes me like that. And what controls, like I said, who watches the watcher? What controls the central executive? Which is an excellent episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. So it's a ghost machine. Um, how does it know when to do what? These are kind of philosophical questions. They sometimes piss me off. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's a little bit unsatisfactory. Let's say that. I find it a little unsatisfactory. It seems like anthropomorphic. Yeah. Like I said, it's like there's a homunculus in there. Someone yeah. pulling letters. Yeah. And who put it there? <laughs> you know. And, so it's got a, it's got a really weird feel to it. That said. We totally accept. Did anybody in here in this class? A lot of guys took great behavior with me. Very large number of you. No one has a problem with information goes to V1, and then it's routed to V2, and then V3, and V4, and V5, and the eventual dorsal streams are created. Who's making that happen? 
it just happens. So I mean, I think part of this is that that it's difficult for us when we don't have this stuff all neurologically isolated to say there's a mechanism doing something. I think that's probably our issue. And I have the same issue, and I probably shouldn't. But I have this bias that there's a that there is an issue with the central executive. I don't really think there probably is. If I imagine it as a cognitive subsystem, kind of like a stomach, an organ, it's an organ, or we call it today a module. No one says, well, how does your stomach know to break down food? Well, no, it just breaks the food. That's its job. Who's controlling your heart? No one worries about that. So maybe I shouldn't worry about this. And maybe I'm having a problem I rail against all the time, which is the mind-body problem. Maybe I shouldn't worry so much. But I just find it unsatisfactory. And I probably shouldn't. Because Badley and Hitch are probably both smarter than me. Easily. Two of them put together are easily smarter than me. So I don't know. I, I just find it... I don't know. Any other thoughts on this? Because I, I don't know. I just Should I feel this uncomfortable about it? <laughs> yeah. You think so? But do you feel, like you took great behavior, did you feel uncomfortable about the way the visual system worked? A little bit. Why, oh, really? why do you feel uncomfortable with this uh, rather than all the other things? That I know. Do. That's the question I'm asking. I shouldn't. That's the problem. I really shouldn't. I really, really shouldn't, but I do. I think it's because of the fact that I can look at the layers of D1 and see around it. I can look at your stomach and watch the food goes into it and then it breaks down. It's like, well, it clearly happens. Yes, it's confusing, I think, everybody. I think even the you know, highest level neuroscientists in the world are confused by it. So I guess I probably shouldn't worry so much about it, but it, it, it bugs me. It bugs me. Uh, and as somebody who, who certainly accepts the idea of the modularity of cognition, the idea that we have these subsystems that are basically like organs, but they're cognitive organs, uh, and that evolution should work that way, uh, I really should accept this a lot more readily. But I, I don't. The stupid emotional reaction to having, I guess, what it is. Okay, some conclusions about this. Well, let's keep it on. All right, whatever. Um, short-term memory or working memory is an active process. So we're doing things like rehearsal. Okay. It's an active process. It's not that stuff is just being forced in. And in fact, when we look at the more modern idea of working memory, it's pretty clear that it's active such that the central executive is also saying, you do this, you do this, you do this. You go here, you go here. Um, and it seems to have different faculties. Different subsystems, different modules, call it any of those. They can be isolated experimentally. So, I mean, that seems to exist. I, I still have this problem with the central executive, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> like I said, I think it's a philosophical problem I have with it, which bugs me because I, I don't like having philosophical because the data say this is there, there and you know, I, I don't think I should have much of an issue, but I, I apparently do. Other questions or comments on this stuff? Oh, yeah, sorry, Daniel. Speaking of monkey python, uh, you remember the thing that Greg would have a question on colors? Would that uh, have to do with bad short-term memory as well? 
No, I don't remember the thing you're talking about, so describe it. Uh, first, we'll go about, you know, the three questions. Oh, and what's your favorite color? Yeah. Um, no. Your favorite color, well, you would have to bring it in. So people are asked, uh, this is when they're crossing the bridge in Holy Grail, and uh, they ask a couple of questions. What's your quest? Uh, the other one is, and then what's your favorite color? And the guy says, green, no blue, and he gets them off the bridge. So that would be semantic knowledge. That's a fact of the world. Even though it is it's episodic, in a way, you might think that because it's autobiographical, it's actually a fact about the world. Except it's the way you perceive the world. So your favorite color is blue, your favorite color is green. Um, so that would have to be brought into working memory, but it would have been stored in semantic memory, which is a part of what we call long-term memory. Okay. Other questions? Yeah. Yep. Can I ask about phone numbers? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was thinking, would you... I feel like I remember them, like, the area, like, because where I live, there's like a bunch of little towns, and each one has the first three numbers are different. Yep. So I feel like I remember the first three numbers to match the town, and then the end oh, separately. Is that like the same thing? Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, you're chunking them as, as, as different items. There's, there's no argument there. When they bring in a new... Extra is a new area code here. Four, four, five, oh. What is it? 450. Oh, that's here, is it? Is it 450? Well, if only there was a way, if only all the world's information was connected. Because um, I, can, I can look this up. But yeah, once they bring in other area codes, I know where my, where my, my sister lives. <coughs> um, whoops, I screwed that up. Whoops, no, I didn't screw it up. No, there it is right there. 249. So 249 is another area code that's going to overlap on 705. So eventually, people that get new phones are going to get 249 area codes. And then that's going to be complicated. I know my sister lives in 519. Uh, <laughs> area code, same thing happens in Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say, when I lived in St. Catharines, I had a group of friends made about eight people, and all of us had different areas. Yeah, and that's going to be where it gets a little more complicated, because you're not going to be able to remember 705 is up here, because also, so is 249, right? Um, and it used to be a lot more the case, what you're talking about, which is the each, we used to call exchanges. They really aren't exchanges anymore, because telephone system doesn't really work that way anymore. But there used to be a different one in each town. And then in different parts of town. So everyone, for example, where I lived in Sudbury had 566 when I was a kid. Everybody's phone number started with 566. And then, but now it doesn't really work that way, right? So for example, I have a tele cell phone, so it starts with 257. Because <laughs> cell phones in Sault Ste. Marie start with 257 instead of 5257. Give you the rest. And 206. And 206 is the other one. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead. Um, just about that multiple components model, I just wanted to make sure I wrote that down right. So it's phonological um, loop, visual spatial set, sketch pad, abstract semantic knowledge, and procedural. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Yep. So phone numbers are interesting also. Postal codes are interesting because postal codes in Canada are impo almost impossible to chunk. 
because you can't make it meaningful. You're making it meaningful by saying echo bay is this, Epsilon is this. You can't make it meaningful. Canadian postal code can't be meaningful. Right? My postal code is P6A5Z4. I don't even think of that as two separate as, as, as two separate chunks, like where you're supposed to write it. It's nine damn digits, or six digits. I don't even know how many digits it is. You know what that is? You live somewhere long enough, I know that P6A is a common thing here. Right? Um, we lived in Quarterbrook for six years, and our postal code is A2H1A1. Right? A2H was something eventually I knew. But they're meaningless, whereas I think I've talked about how postal codes in the UK, the first two letters are actually the first two letters of the, of the area you live in. So all Oxford ones are OX1, OX2, OX3. Oh, that's useful. I can remember that. It's, and in fact, apparently, when we first brought in, when Canada first brought in postal codes, which was in the early 1970s, one of the things that was done was, well, they would say, we're going to do it like this. Letter, number, letter, letter, number, letter, number. And apparently a bunch of people from the Canadian Psychological Association, general psychologists, said, don't do it that way. Do it any other way but that way. Go number, 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 letter, letter, letter. That's fine. Or the other way. Or all letters. Or all numbers. Americans use all numbers. It works out for them. No, no. The letter is the, is the zone. Then the number is another thing. And then the next letter is the postal station. All P6s are 6 Yeah, and all N6s are London, and all M5s are downtown Toronto. But and all A2s are Corbrook, Newfoundland. But I just know that from experience. I can't parse that by looking at it. No. Right? Whereas in the state, well, you can do a little bit in Canada because you know A starts in the East Coast and it goes all the way to the alphabet the other way. In the states, you know that it starts at 1 and goes to 9. Right? Nonetheless. All right, other questions? Okay, so if you have any other stuff, be sure to message me or whatever. Uh, and uh, but the test coming up, and I'll see you guys then when we're ready for the test. Thanks, everyone.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.